0: They were telling everyone, this guy is a killer sent in by the Kinahan cartel to sort out the hutches. He was just a lost soul floating around Ireland's underworld. It got him killed. He was quite confident. He knew how to use the weapon. Some of these guys, like they they don't cope with the consequences of what they've done at, you know, at points in their criminal career.
1: I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. In the movies, they are portrayed as cool and calculated killers who strike with military precision and disappear into the shadows. But real life assassins are often the lowly street soldiers of mafia bosses, shackled by drug deaths and slaves to their past like Cailin Smith recently jailed for 20 years for a failed Kinnahan mafia hit This week I'm talking to journalist Eamon Dillon about the army of killers behind bars for their roles in the brutal Hutch and Kinnahan feud He tells me about the drug addicts the dropouts and the opportunists who make up the mob's murder cells and he recalls his own strange encounter with the self-professed killer who talked his way to the grave. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com That was a pretty hefty sentence that Calen Smith got. Uh, I'd say it's probably one of the longest I've seen any of those um, get, in actual fact, 20 years. Staring down quite a, quite a long sentence, even though he obviously won't serve the whole lot. He's, um, we'll come back to him maybe, Eamon. He's, he's somebody that is um, part of a growing number of prisoners who are in jail because they have taken some money or they've been lured into doing a job for a large criminal organisation, in this case being the Kinnahans. You were writing there the other week about um, an interesting character, Valerijus Vins. Yeah, he
0: he was actually lucky in a sense that he didn't get jailed, but it was a real insight into how all this works. Uh, Like this guy, you know, he came over, he was just a kid who arrived in from Latvia five years ago. He was like, sorry, five years before all this happened. Uh, he, he, he was 18, he was working in the farms. His father died when he was 12. He was one of six kids. The only family he had living in Ireland was another brother. And uh, By 2016, early 2016, he owed 20 grand in debt. Uh, he he had developed a drug problem uh, and he, he was a perfect kind of sucker for more serious criminals to use. Uh, what happened was then he was basically told that um, you need to meet someone, himself and another sixteen year old now who can't be named, he's too young at the time. The two of them were told you have to go and collect a parcel and we'll wipe half your half your debt. So he was told that basically you're gonna go somewhere, you're gonna pick up something, and you'll only owe us ten grand instead of twenty. So he had no idea what he was going to do or what it was going to be used for or even who he was meeting.
1: And when was this, Eamon? when are you talking that this happened? This
0: this would, would have been at the height of the Kinnaghan-Hutch feud in February 2016. So, I mean, you know, you can imagine, you know, a 25-year-old Latvian and a 16-year-old, you know, Eastern European aren't necessarily going to be reading the newspapers and really have any idea what might be going on above their heads. So the guys set off anyway, uh, leaving the Dublin area. They were getting all their instructions from a burner phone. Uh, they, they, they would travel along then the, the M7. They would stop at certain filling stations, presumably getting more instructions and he ended up uh, like he ended up uh, at a, the, the railway station in Limerick and then said at a nearby housing estate. So that's boundna Western more than likely that we'd have known about in the Sunday World over the years as a kind of a heartland of, of the McCarthy Dundons would have, would have been involved in an awful lot of criminality in that particular area. So he, all, all he could say was that a, a big man in a big coat, middle-aged, dropped something into the boot and off they took again. And they had no, you know, again, they didn't know what was in the boot of the car And uh, when they got back. As far as the the toll near Mount Rath and Leash, the Gardaí had them under surveillance all along. It turns out, uh, when they looked in the car in the boot, they found a nine millimeter Glock uh, handgun, fully automatic with eighteen rounds. So uh, they were there to do, you know, they were there to do some, some. It, it was there to do some serious damage. Like this isn't a collector's item. This is. You know, one of the, you know, sought after sort of weapons used by not just gangland, but also by police forces around the world. It's a a very reliable, easy to use handgun. So, I mean, he more or less said what he knew. Uh, I mean, he couldn't he couldn't really deny anything. turns out the guards were able to actually kind of shed light on who it was when they tracked down his movements in the the days beforehand. They found a meeting with a third party. In, uh, at, at various filling stations. Now, this guy, as we would later find out, turned out to be Jonathan kill so, so, like, this is how Vins had a lucky escape, because that was in February 2016, and Keogh was trying to get a handgun. And in May 2016, Keogh was involved in the shooting dead of Gareth Hutch. In that case, they use a Ma- Makarov pistol. So while this while this plot involving the two young Latvians like to, to get a gun, obviously bought from a gang in Limerick, had failed, they actually did manage then to to get their hands on a weapon that they used. And I, I mean, that, that particular uh, murder was, was caught on, as you remember, it was caught on CCTV. Two men rushed out of a flat. They caught their target as he was getting into the car and shot him dead. So it was, it was, a, pretty, it was a pretty kind of um, no holds barred killing in that sense. Gareth Hutch wasn't even a particularly, you know, high level criminal. It was just it, simply he was a Hutch and that was the reason he was killed.
1: They, they were wiping them out at that stage. I mean, I think um, Johnny Keough himself, as a hitman, was a neighbour of Gareth Hutch, and that is another thing that was used within the community. There was money being offered to people, to spotters, to anybody who was willing to identify a target and take an opportunity to take them out. I mean, that was very much the height of the feud. Your your guy, Valerius Vins, um, his... His uh, liaison with all this ended in court the other day. I think you were you were there to see what happened. What tell us what the conclusion of it was.
0: Now this is in Tullamore Circuit Court, and there was Keenan Johnson was the judge in that case. Now it's a mandatory sentence. Uh, it's a five year mandatory sentence for for carrying a firearm or for being in pos- possession of one. But mandatory sentences Ireland also allow judges, believe it or not, the uh, the where like the, the 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 rigor room, I guess, to, to take into account the various mitigation. A bit like journalists, I think uh, judges don't like being told what to do. So in this case, he decided that there was no there was no great point in sending this young man to jail. There was evidence given that you know in the time, like since his arrest, it actually dragged on quite a, for quite a while, partly because Kyo had taken off uh, to the UK and was uh, avoiding arrest at that stage. So. He, he had a, he, he'd he relearned the trade. He was now working as a panel beater. His employer thought a lot of him. Uh, there was 5,000 bail money that had been put up for him. And it was agreed then that this would be paid over uh, by way of a donation to charity. And so he, he was given a three-year sentence and was suspended for 10 years, which I, I guess he was lucky. I mean, he did have some previous, but they were all road traffic. And I think that's really what saved him. And the fact that he did come from a, a particularly tough background and, Judge Johnson was was happy to accept that, and certainly the there was a detective garda who gave evidence. They said that they genuinely like that the threats were genuine, and that he genuinely believed them because he he was. Vance had talked about uh, he, he had a, a girlfriend. Um, a young boy at that time and he was basically in fear of not only his life but that they would be harmed as well which was, it wasn't just the 10,000 euro, that was the, the secondary motiv- motivation.
1: And it was very interesting that you found this case and that you were able to attend it because this was one that wasn't one of the more high profile cases that we, we talk about like like Calen Smith this week and, and others. I mean, this is one of the ones that would have slipped under the radar had you not um, had you not followed up and attended that. And it's interesting that here was a guy that you know owed twenty thousand. He had obviously built that up over a, a short space of time. But for some people, twenty thousand is just an enormous amount of money. There is no way of paying it back, and they are that fear is so real that something's going to happen to them or their families that they will take on these jobs. Very high risk transporting a gun that could have been used in a murder. Um, I suppose you know he, his story is a classic one. Um, there is a number of different motivations that uh, bring people to a murder cell or to you know to be taking up a freelance role as a as an assassin. Um, all of them go back to money, either the desire to earn that money or that somebody owes money and and are frightened. I don't think very many kill by choice. And in the drug world, there is this sort of sense of shared guilt when it comes to drug dealing because somebody is willingly buying the product off you. So you may feel bad about it, but ultimately they're making the choice as well. But when it comes to murder, it's completely and utterly different. Um, And morally, like a lot of people, will find themselves involved in it and in later life they have serious regrets and sometimes it can it can eat away at them themselves but um there's at the moment more than 30 people in jail in this country just in relation to murder attempts um and murders that have been carried out in relation to the feud the Kinnahan Hutch feud um these people are Lots of them, anyway, are have educational problems. They've money problems. They've had family and personal problems. Some of them have a low IQ. Um, you know, it's not the big role in a drug gang to be a killer or to be helping out in a, in a in a kill in a in a attempted murder. You know, what sort of people are they? How are they being plucked? These soldiers. Where are they being found in in on the streets and where are, are, are the likes of the gang leaders finding people? I think
0: an instructive case in that regard to answer some of those questions would be the cells that were set up um, by the Kinnahan cartel uh, to try and kill Patsy Hutch, a brother of the monk. Uh, he lives in Champions Ave- uh, Avenue in the city centre, Dublin, just in, just off O'Connell Street, and that was those arrests uh, came in March 2018. It was it was a long, it was a, a, a quite, it was a serious win for the guards in this case. I mean, there was that um, they had they had these guys under surveillance all along, which is where we get this fascinating insight from, and some of the actual comments were, were were played in court. They they were like it's incredible. Like when you look at when you ask who these guys were, I mean, you have like the the way they set it up is that you had a you had your your, your sub you had your cell leader, and which in this case was Patrick Curtis, and he was the only person with the encrypted phone that was talking to somebody presumably, uh, talking to the higher echelons. And they gave that that mystery mystery person in the higher echelons, they gave him the nickname Lord Knows. So Lord Knows was sending these encrypted messages to Patrick Curtis. He was a guy from uh, Dublin's north inner city who unfortunately uh, suffers serious claustrophobia, um, which is unfortunate for the guy who's now doing a 12-year stretch. Now, he, he wasn't probably the best guy for the job. I think his his own brother Stephen, who was down, who's on the next level, said as much to some of his some of the other co-conspirators. Like he had the he had the encrypted phone, uh, but unfortunately he couldn't remember the messages because they were self-deleting too quickly. So he had to photograph them with his own phone, which then in turn left a trail of evidence for the guards to figure out who was who when they, they did they did pound. So it didn't wor- work um, quite well in that sense. So So you had Patrick Curtis at the top. He was the director of the operation in Ireland, and he was the only one in direct contact with the higher echelons. Now, the the next guy's down, you had Michael Burns on one side, and then you had his brother Stephen Curtis on the other side. Now, um, now again, like, actually, it was interesting, like Patrick was actually saying to Burns at one stage, this is him on tape, he's saying he gets it wrong all the time. He always gets it wrong. He's wrong bringing people into that coffee shop, and he was referring to this... uh, there's a coffee shop on the north side of the city where he was regularly meeting up with the other, the other kind of eight members of of the of the the cell that were going to you know carry out the hit, uh, and he complained that he's used by guards all the time, and so he was talking about his own brother. So as well as them, like in the in the first attempt, the two hitmen then were going to be these two other uh, chaps, uh, Mohammed Smew and Mark Capper. Now Mark
1: Capper. These guys were gonna be the, the triggermen. Is these, that, is that guys, the case? Yeah, yeah. And now we can, they were holding the firearms, yeah.
0: Yeah, now he's been now it's interesting, Mark Capper, is he's often he's described as having, you know, um a very low IQ. It was mentioned in Court he had an IQ of 63, he suffered from ADHD, he had a very low standard of education, uh, and and, and was in special school. But when you actually listen back or or look at some of the statements they made, he was actually one of the smarter guys in terms of, he was pointing out where all the errors were in in this plot. What they wanted to do was to to cause some kind of um, commotion at at Patsy Hutch's uh, daughter's house. Uh, And then that he'd come running or he'd come to the rescue and then the hitmen would be waiting for him and they'd shoot him. And then they had their their plan to get away using another van. So there was quite a few flaws, really, when you consider how many guards were in that area. Uh, plus there was there was a wheel uh, hanging off the van at the time the the motorbike that was going to be used as well uh, when it went at a certain speed you know there was a problem with it so you had mohammed smew then as well now the thing is both of these they 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 were both absolutely broke i mean they 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 were heard on tape kind of asking one asking the other for a loan 50 quid and says sorry mate i don't have it i mean the two were absolutely bust broke now smew on the other hand he actually came from a you know a, a good background. His his parents were doctors, uh, but he ha- he had he suffered an accident and and I think he got into drug addiction uh, as a result of that. Ended up homeless. So you have a homeless guy. You have a guy like who was in special school. And these are the two guys who are going to carry out the hit. And then the the third man on that particular cell was um, was this guy Kieran O'Driscoll, who's who was, who was a, a, basically a neighbor of Patsy Hutch's, uh, and he he was a. He was a drug addict with, I think, something like 90 previous convictions. So, again, he was doing it for the money. Now, earlier at this stage, I think um, Curtis had been given 7,000 euro like to, for expenses. Obviously, to 40, I think 40 euro went on repairing the tire and the van that was going to be used as the getaway. So, Storm Emma then, actually, if you remember in, 20, in 2018, was that the heavy snow and snow. Uh, that's that's when uh, you, you remember then uh, Smew was one of the guys then that was arrested for breaking into the into the little store in in uh, in Talla. So like that that's the level of of you know high level gangster that you're talking about. So in the end, like Capper's objections were seen as that he was he wasn't really up to the job, uh, and and they were the two of them were actually they were discarded. They were no longer going to be used in in the murder plot, and instead then you had um, you, you had Glen and. Gary Thompson from Finglas were brought in. Now, they were, like, Glenn was a small-time criminal. He had drug habit, minor criminal convictions. And at the time, it was said, you know, it was that time he was suffering emotional uh, turmoil as a result of a, a, a death in the family. And his brother, who was was, um, who was much older than him, actually was recruited in as well. And as well as that, they had a, a former British Army soldier who had uh, served in Hemland province. And he was going to be the trigger man, this guy called Robert Brown. So they were all... They were all set to go again they were they were talking about the cash Brown has heard you know he's he's heard again like you know, got the guard of bugs talking about uh, he's telling one of the Thompsons as they drove around he says oh I'm gonna get you 15 grand out of this so this is a guy who was as far as he was concerned he was a mercenary doing a job uh, and it was you know it, it wasn't a, you know it, it wasn't for revenge it wasn't personal it was for cash cold hard cash and that was the only reason he was getting into it Unfortunately for him, the entire operation from the very beginning was under, you know, really tight surveillance. So they were all they were all picked up, and all of this, would, all of eventually came out in the special criminal court. In fact, the the evidence was so was lined up and stacked up against him so much, all nine members just pleaded guilty. There was no point in even trying to contest the charges.
1: You know, when you think that, and Patsy Hutch was somebody that the Kinahan organization really, really want dead. I mean, he's still a top target there and both himself and James Mago Gately have survived a number of attempts that were, were being plotted. But 100 grand would have been in and around, they say, they talk about between 100 and 200 grand would have been what it would have earned them to kill him that day. I remember that day, I think it was a Saturday. And I think... They were the good old days, Eamon, when we were in the office. Um, despite the fact we would have complained back then, it seems like a dream now to be uh, you know, back back in our office with all our colleagues around us. But yeah, it was a it was a it was about 12 o'clock or one o'clock in the afternoon when they 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 busted that gang and they were hoping that he was going to walk up the street. They were gonna shoot him in broad daylight on the streets of the city centre. For anyone who doesn't know, Champions Avenue is literally just off O'Connell Street. So it's very city centre. And since the Regency hotel attack, there have been there has been guarded presence on that street because of such as the critical threat to the life of Patsy Hutch, the monk's brother. But they were still going to try and do that. Um, but when you think if you divided that money up nine times, There's not very much actually actual earnings out of that, and then they had to pay their expenses on top of it. You know, it's not really that somebody's going to get rich by doing the worst job in gangland. And as I said, so high risk. You were talking there about um, the bugs and the cars, and in the last year or so, I I was in and out of the courts, dipping in and out of these cases that are ongoing, largely in the Special Criminal Court, and. There was another murder cell, actually, that was busted as well by the, the, the guards. And this was a plot to murder a guy called Gary Hanley, who's an associate also of the, the Hutch side. And five guys, Liam Brannigan and Dean Howe, who would be veteran Kinnahan uh, associates, and Joseph Kelly, Luke and Alan Wilson all pleaded guilty in relation to that conspiracy to murder. They too were all under surveillance and being bugged when they were plotting to kill Gary Hanley. And for two days in court, they played those recordings and they were just quite fascinating to listen to them. Um, I sat through them. Um, You know, they reminded me of the way we'd be on a surveillance operation. Um, If we were out in the car or in the Jeeps with one of the photographers and you were sitting waiting for somebody and you get bored... And like, it is probably the most boring job in the world doing that sort of surveillance stuff. So here they were sitting outside a house um, waiting for an opportunity to kill Gary Hanley. Totally, he's inside, totally unaware, carrying on with with life. Um, He's a small baby. They talk about, in the car, sorry, firstly, they bring tea and biscuits with them to keep them uh, going while they're sitting watching this house. They talk about him. They talk about, uh, you know, how they're going to go about killing him. What are they going to do if he has the baby in his arms? Well, look, you know, we don't want to necessarily purposely hurt the baby, but if the baby gets hit by a ricochet bullet, then that's fair game. Uh, And this is the kind of conversations these guys are having. They talk about their girlfriends. They talk about their children. There's a birthday coming up and two of them are discussing the price of the mobile phones the kids want and where they're going to get it and how cheap they can get it. Um, They were arrested, by the way, that time in November of 2017. Um, So it was coming up to Christmas and you can hear them discussing how they need to get this hit done because they need to get paid for the Christmas. They want the money for Christmas. And, you know, at one point, actually, I was in court and a group of uh, transition year students came in to the courtroom and sometimes some of the evidence can be a little bit inappropriate, you know, but they just happen to come in and sit down at this particular moment when Joseph Kelly, who again is a um, a drug addict, you know, somebody disadvantaged and with a, a large record. And he's explaining to Alan Wilson, who's a, a more maybe notorious criminal. They're sitting there watching Hanley and he says to him, uh, do you know, I can't drink whiskey. I just can't get it into me. But if you take Captain Morgan's and you mix it with Club Orange, it just tastes like a Solero ice pop. And I was actually sitting there going, oh God, we better get the transition your pupils out here. That'll be totally inappropriate for them to hear. But in the meantime, you sort of nearly yourself kind of forget what's going on because you're listening to this very normal conversation, inappropriate, albeit for fourth years. But they are actually... Waiting to take a man's life. And they're going to take his life for the payment that'll, you know, cover Christmas. And that's the reality of this situation. That's how how little life means for these guys and how much they just see it as a as a job. But Eamon, you were writing recently about how much they get paid or how much you know, what is it worth? What is a life worth nowadays?
0: Yeah, this is something that Europol put together, obviously from different reports, from different, you know, member police agencies around Europe. Um, And they came up with the idea that it was somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000. It's basically the cost of of a contract killing, which from what we've just been discussing would sound a little at the high end, you know. I mean, like at the the, the height of the kind of the, the feuding in Limerick, I mean the figure that somebody you know would the, that was touted what a you know a so called professional hitman in the city would get tended to be around five thousand, you know which it just shows you how incredibly, um, you know cheap life is. But even to go back to when you're discussing like you know that the the guys in the handy trial like in the very very mundane kind of ordinary boringness of. Of the people involved, and then they carry out something so horrible and heinous, or are prepared to do it, and it's just it, it, like you see that so often. I mean, even even just recently, there was a court case. Unfortunately, it's now it's it's two people are, are before the courts. Um, with, it's a major drugs haul, and one of them had said to the guards at the time, "I just I I I did what I had to do to keep everyone safe." But just looking at them, they were like two fellas you'd see out, you know, driving a van, doing a bit of fishing. Going for a few beers in the in the in the pub, like there was nothing extraordinary about them, you know. And and these are the people who tend to get sucked in. So I mean, I think that was kind of reflected in in what the Europol kind of re- report was talking about, that a, a lot of it it's it's a mix. I mean, obviously, you know, you'd have certain uh, criminal organisations like some of the Italian mafias, where you know that they, they might have particular people that will carry out certain types of hits that have to be done very carefully because they don't want to they're probably not worried about the police. They're probably worried about upsetting other people in the criminal underworld. And they have to be carried out far more far more carefully where somebody completely disappears. But there has to be a reason why they might have disappeared as opposed to being deliberately murdered. Uh, and so, but in terms of like, if you just want somebody to have a go at, you know, another street level dealer, like it's pretty cheap. So like, obviously this is where, you know, other agencies have picked up, you know, similar kind of surveillance audio the way, they have done with the, the Patsy Hutch, you know, the attempt to kill Patsy Hutch and Gary Hanley. Like one, one of the things they talk about in it as well is that one of the mistakes that police in Europe have been doing is seeing it as a, a single jurisdictional event. And that it's usually, you know, again, it's, it's, it's more than that. I mean, we saw it with the likes of uh, David Hunter, who, was, you know, came from Liverpool for his, his role in the Michael Barr killing. Um, I mean
1: Just explain hit that to me a little bit David Hunter what, why, why was he coming from Liverpool to be involved in a murder here surely the idea of flying in and was he flying back out or what, what was his deal with that
0: Yeah well he was one of these guys presumably you have to imagine that the contact is, is coming from the cartel people that were operating in the north of England. We know that Thomas bomber Kavanaugh was for years there in, in Birmingham. He's facing a long sentence now for a huge cons- drugs conspiracy charge. So the likes of Hunter would have been within the orbit of, you know, Kinahan cartel people. So they're looking for clean skin, somebody that can come over that, you know, won't be known to the guards, so they can, they can have a quick surveillance of the area. He came over with his girlfriend. They were getting basically off their heads on drinking drugs in a, in a, a hotel or a, in, in swords at the time and then there was a fairly volatile relationship so she encouraged one of her girlfriends to come over and keep her company and the two women went off shopping together while uh hunter was the guy one of the two that went out then and shot michael Barr dead and the next day you know or sorry he went back then and, and went drinking with the two women in temple bar you know in some kind of you know half-hearted attempt at a at, uh, Covering his tracks. And of- Amy,
1: just to stop you there in case people don't remember, but there was something particularly horrifying about that Michael Barr killing. Barr was accused by the Kinnahan Cartel mafia of being involved in the Regency Hotel attack. He was somebody with links to dissident Republicans from the North, and he had uh he was suspected of being involved in, in various things himself, but he was working in the Sunset House bar in the city centre as a barman and the night he was killed he was serving behind the bar and there were local people in there having a drink when in came two gunmen dressed in Freddy Krueger masks and shot him dead in front of their eyes including in the pub that night was a young man with special needs who was in the area and he used to go up every night for a couple of l pints and somebody would drop him home and those people can never be the same again but,
0: it, but even uh, again it's something that I think you wrote about Nicola was that the standard of proof in you know the criminal circles you know that condemned Michael Barr to death was so low is it, he was shot because he he was thought to be a dissident republican from Strabane the same place as um, the man in the flat cap Murray who was seen running from the Regency Hotel so he he was known to have known him so that was enough for him to suggest for, for the to suggest that he must have had something to do with the supply of the AK-47s that were used by the Hutch gang members who went into the Regency Hotel dressed as guards. And that was the reason he was shot. So, you know, mm-hmm. as, you, as you mentioned, like, you know, it's just a, in front of all those people. That was a, you know, it's a community pub right in the corner there, you know, uh, up near uh, Summer Hill. Um, and it's, it's they, I think someone else tried to run the pub again afterwards, but it's since shut down. So, I mean, it, it took away an amenity, I guess, from the local community. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's a long-lasting effect on, uh, apart from the people that you know, the totally innocent people that had to witness it. But you know, on the did um, on, on the family as well.
1: Did Hunter fly home after
0: it, or what happened with him? He yeah, well, he he was supposed to go to Thailand with the driver of the getaway car, um, but it turned out then his passport was out of date, so he spent nine hundred quid on getting a second ticket after getting an emergency passport from Store Street Garda oh. Station, where he went in to get his all his papers stamped and flew off then. And he's, he ended up in, in Spain and his girlfriend went to, flew out to meet him, the long-suffering girlfriend. And uh, when he hadn't turned up at the airport to meet her, she turned tail and went straight back home. So, you know, it's just, I, it's, in one sense, it's laughable. I mean, it's tragic, but it's just laughable that these, I mean, he, he was, you know, he, he was a little bit of a car thief. Uh, his excuse for having one of his trips to Dublin beforehand when he was meeting with the Kinning cartel was that he was coming over to Dublin to steal cars to order. And um, that was the excuse to the guards. And it, there was no evidence that he stole anything and he flew back the next day. So, again, you're talking about, you know, real low level criminals that are just, you know, they're, they're just fodder. I mean, as far as the, the higher, you know, the top brass and the kid can tell are concerned. Like they're just they're just they're headed for an early grave or a jail cell. They don't really care.
1: They just completely use them. What was he? What conviction did Hunter get? He was jailed for life. Oh, he got—he was charged and convicted of murder. Yeah, he, he left.
0: He managed to to leave his burner phone uh, at the scene when they and they also didn't set fire to the car properly. So they're mm. they, were, they were basically
1: able to track him down as a result of that. So and the other person in jail for life for that is Eamon Cumberton again, uh, a North Inner City local who um, had links to the INLA and who wanted to make money and from the beginning he was the guy i mean i think he is suspected of having travelled to um perhaps have a look at some other hits before the regency um happened and which are all part of the the fabric of the uh, the feud you know the likes of um hunter and as you say the other guys that just look so normal and so ordinary you would imagine that that ordinariness is something that would be required as a hitman, but uh, another one I sat in awe at in, in our courts, in the special criminal courts, was Imre Arrakis, the Estonian, known in his homeland as the Butcher, sent over to Ireland in 2017 to murder James Mago Gately and to have a look at um, other sort of members of the Hutch faction that uh, that uh, the Kinnahans were, were trying to take out at the time. So he is really different. I mean, he's not your kind of street level tug. This guy, there cannot possibly be too many of these because Imre Arakis is not only a hitman, but he is a celebrity in his in his home country. He um, as I said to you, he he started out with the nickname "The Butcher." He was an Estonian who spent fifteen years in a Russian jail. Uh, when he got out, he got involved in some gang wars between Estonians and Russians, which must have been really pretty nasty. Um, he survived it himself, but I think 100 people died in that feud, which is five times really the amount from the, the Kinahan hutch feud, if you think about it that way. He fled to the south coast of Spain, along with many of our um, well-known criminals from all over Europe and beyond and there he also survived an assassination, but he was he was there from about the late 90s and into the early 2000s, really when that Kinahan organisation was beginning to blossom. Um, and he became a freelance assassin. So he hired out his services to whoever uh, wanted him. And he is suspected of a, a lot of killings, including one in Lithuania, where a man who had a, an affair with a pop princess was uh, shot dead, but... Um, As a killer for hire, he was sent to Ireland uh, in this effort to kill both uh, Mago Gately and possibly Patsy Hutch. He flew in posing as a fisherman with a tent on his back and took the bus from Dublin Airport into the city centre. He went into a couple of shops in O'Connell Street and, and bought a few bits that would do him as a disguise. And he walked up along Champions Avenue and had a look at Patsy Hutch's house. He had a look at the spot where Gareth Hutch was murdered. And then he made his way out to a house where he had spent the night before the cops burst in. The guards from the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau had been watching him all along and he was he was lifted. Um, so when he appeared in court, like, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like him. He's absolutely enormous. He is absolutely huge. He's like a big Neanderthal man, right? With this long flowing whitey blondy hair and these piercing blue eyes. Like, I think he was kind of seen as a bit of a James Bond type character. Quite a good looking man, very distinctive anyway. And like, it just, you're looking at him going, how did he ever think he was going to blend in anywhere? in particular here in Ireland. I mean, he really stood out. For me, I was quite speechless when I saw him in the flesh. He subsequently was um, found guilty of conspiracy to murder Mago Gately. He has a, a sentence here in Ireland which he's serving and then he's going to be extradited directly to Lithuania where he will face those murder charges in relation to the, the, the chap who um, was killed because of his links to the, the pop star. So the end of the road for him, but um, certainly he stood out for me. And I think, I think you had a little um, interaction with somebody who was probably the only other one I can think of that looked so different and strange and and was all that. Tell me about Hamid Sanambar.
0: I think he's kind of the polar opposite to the Estonian super criminal, celebrity super criminal. I mean, Hamid, uh, Hamid Sanambar... Uh, as far as the Gucci gang, which I suppose will bring us on to Caitlin Smith, as as far as the Gucci gang were concerned, they were telling everyone, this guy is a killer from Syria, sent in by the Kinahan cartel to sort out the hutches. And he was regularly seen with them. He looked apart in his in his you know his leather jacket, his two uh, teardrops tattooed in his face, supposedly signifying, you know, having taken a life or seeking revenge for two murders. Um, and when I saw when I saw his pictures, his picture turned up when uh, i think it was Sean little was killed and the car was burning uh, outside uh, north county dublin and a group a group of the
1: this was the summer this was the summer of 2019 when there was an explosion of violence um in that sort of Kulak area and within those gangs there had been a taming of the violence within the Kinnahan Hutch feud and a sort of a, not a relaxation, but maybe a belief that this had calmed down a bit and the guards had got a handle out of it. All of a sudden, Sean Little was murdered and months after his pal, Zach Parker, two young drug dealers. And and, exa- and in the middle of
0: this is Hamid Sanambar. And it, it took a little while for the penny to drop. And then I remembered, I'd seen him before and it was four years before he had actually phoned up the Sunderworld um, and he, he said, look, I have a good story to tell you. And needless to say, you know, you, you talk to someone over the phone, you kind of assess it. So I went down and I met him. He was living in a flat in Longford. And my first impression was, again, this guy was absolutely flat broke. I mean, he, he had nothing. He didn't have, he didn't have two pennies to, to rub together. He was living in this, like, uh, a flat in, in this, the middle of the town. Like, it was sparse. It was barely, fir- you know, furnished. And he did a good kind of impression of looking over his shoulder, checking the blinds, you know, opening doors slightly, looking around corners as if he was under surveillance. You know, he was one of these, you know, kind of hyper-vigilant sort of, uh, uh, you know, intelligence operatives. Um, So anyway, he, he just talked and talked and talked for about 90 minutes and it was nonstop. And he seemed to know everything about crime in Ireland. Now, he either was what he said he was, like plugged into all of this stuff, or else he had done a forensic read of everything The Sunday World, you know, had published in the previous 10 years. But he really did, you know, he, he certainly gave the impression he knew a lot about it. But when he, when he veered off the stuff that wasn't publicly, public knowledge, nothing could be verified. Now, I, I'd no doubt that he was involved, or he was some kind of, you know, a hanger-on on, on, so, on some of the, the crime gangs that, you know, we subsequently know a bit more about in Longford. Um, they've been involved in drugs, prostitution, Uh, protection rackets, stolen machinery. So he was onto something. But anyway, he turned up like as the driver for one of the Gucci gang. And my information from some people who remembered him from his Longford days was say that he's basically working for pizza slices. And that's, you know, so this image of this, you know, hardened Syrian killer.
1: Now, had he he got those teardrop tattoos when you met him in Longford? No, he
0: didn't. And he didn't have the scorpion tattoo on his ear either. So, I mean, he'd obviously those up along the way and it improved his image but when i met him he told me he was an iranian uh, which it turns out was true he he was an iranian and that he, he fled the country that he was part of uh, he, he was you know part of kind of a political resistance he, he, he more or less admitted he said he just fought the police because he liked fighting and and he showed me that he had really deep cuts on his wrist where obviously he had been hung by his wrist so there was some elements of truth to it like there was no doubt he was a damaged young man uh like one of the things that you could find out about him at the time was that he had taken part in the robbery of a brothel, and there was there was five grand uh, taken. A woman had a jaw broken and a laptop taken, that sort of thing. But he says that he had he had he only gone went along to make sure that the other two people were caught, and he claimed to have told the guards in advance that this was going to happening was going to happen. And so he, he really wanted to become an undercover informant for the guards, and that obviously failed. So his next step then was to ring the Sunday World and become an undercover informant. I shouldn't laugh, it was to become an undercover informant for the for, for us. Um, I mean, God love him. I mean it got him killed, because I mean he talked his way into a, into a, a serious crime gang.
1: He did, and and he was actually after the murder of Sean Little. Um Little was a, a young twenty-three-year-old, maybe twenty-two-year-old, and he was he was uh found dead beside a car out in the Balbriggan area. But days later, um, at his wake, Hamid Sanambar was shot dead in the front garden of Sean Little's house. Um, now, nobody has been identified as the killer, but it is largely understood that he was kind of blamed on uh, something to do and possibly wrongly blamed on something to do with with Sean Little's murder and m- may have been... Um, A token retaliation very early during those sort of heady few days after that killing he talked himself into the gang as you say and talked himself up and we don't know really much about his background do we whether it was true or not but the rumors when he was hanging around with those gucci gang were that he was a torture expert he had uh, you know, he was being sent over directly, supposedly at one point it was saying he was sent over directly by Daniel Kinnahan, and that he was his personal killer and he was here in Ireland to finish off the, the Hutch gang. He certainly looked different. I'm not sure in this country about wearing tattoos on your face if you're trying to blend in um, in the crowd. What was your feeling on him having met him? Was he a fantasist that got in too deep or?
0: I definitely, I walked away from that meeting thinking, you know i I'll, I'll see what the guy has to say in the future and take it from there but my impression was that he was a clever spoofer like he was a clever guy who was well able to use facts up to a point but then when it came to the crunch you kind of knew he wasn't going to deliver and but he was he was good at what he did you know there was, there was like he, he he sounded the part and it just it just when you went to verify anything he had told anything he had said it was just it, it was always impossible to actually verify it so that was why he was gifted, and there was no doubt that he—he he kind of was given the impression he was further up the, the criminal chain than he was. And probably one of the reasons he was killed was that he had said so much, so many different things he couldn't remember what he had said. But also the fact that if he was killed, there was nobody going to take any revenge from him because he didn't really belong to anyone in Ireland. He was—he was just a, to some extent, a lost soul floating around Ireland's underworld, and it just it got him
1: killed. The other thing I suppose that separated him from the others in the Gucci gang was that he was in his 40s and the rest of them were all in their their 20s. Now, Cailin Smith, who this week was jailed for for 20 years and where we started, he was one of them. He was knocking around in that Gucci gang and he was a guy who... uh, when Imre Arrakis was stopped in his tracks on his way to kill Mago Gately, he took up the bounty and he decided that he would wipe out what we suspect may have been a debt to the Kinnahans, a pretty hefty one. 200,000 is what he was suspected to have owed them. What happened the day that he decided to, to um, see if he could finish off Gately?
0: Again, like they had, they obviously had their information on, on, uh, on Gately and, they were basically following him or waiting for him when he when he arrived at a Topaz garage, and and just opened fired. And again, it was one of these reckless reckless attacks. There was um, <coughs> there was unrelated vehicles that weren't belonging to it. You know, there were members of the public who, which were hit. I mean, the only thing that saved Gately was the fact that he was wearing a a, a bulletproof vest. He was hit uh, five times, and the fifth one actually went through uh, through his jaw, and it was only. Basically, it was the paramedics who arrived on the scene and the people who were there initially that saved his life and stopped him bleeding to death or, or or smothering. So, I mean, Smith, like he was quite confident in a sense that you know he knew how to use the weapon. He'd obviously had practiced or you know had, had basic competency in that regard. Like, and again, he, like he wasn't a, a low member of a criminal organization. Like to build up a two hundred thousand euro debt, you know, it wasn't it wasn't from it wasn't from using the product yourself. So, like in that regard, he was at the opposite end of you know uh, of Vins that we spoke about uh, at the start, the young Latvian farmhand. Whereas, you know, Smith was at the other end of the of the of the criminal ladder. But at the same time, he was pretty much manipulated into doing what he had to do. I mean, like the, the like it's a real internecine feud what's going on in Kulak. <clears throat> I mean, and again, Smith, you know, had spent time growing up in Drogheda, like. To some extent, he didn't know who was after him, but there was a number of people after him, and he, and and a, a two hundred thousand euro debt was, was was his, and this is one way of possibly it was a ticket out of town, possibly it was a way of getting the money back or more, um, and 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 that's why he did it. But you know, no more than Vince, you know, the the youngster working in the fields, he was manipulated into it. I mean, you can have certainly you can have less sympathy for him, and certainly the the judge did in this case who gave him twenty years. What you were saying is like, you know, it's a it's a steep it's a steep sentence by Irish standards. I mean, 20 years is, is sometimes longer than what, you know, somebody who's, who gets life, you know, will, will actually serve. I noticed this morning when he was heading he, when he, after sentencing, he shouted to, or he mentioned it to family members, five World Cups and I'll be out. But that's actually I was working it out. It'll probably be three World Cups when he gets out, you know, with standard remission and depending when when it's on.
1: So he'd be he be out sooner than he thinks. Calen Smith was had a start to life. Look, they all put up a defence. You know when they're and in sentencing, all these guys will lean on the disadvantages of their youth in order to sort of get a lesser sentence or for it to be certainly considered by the judge. We know that, but at the same time, there is there is stories in in all of their pasts. And Cailin Smith was somebody who was a champion boxer who seemed to be going on the right way in life until his parents split up. And he, he just seems to have become very chaotic. Um, certainly when I was looking at him before, there seemed to have been an older individual who was circling him in his teenage years and who steered him maybe into crime. And uh, that's... Unfortunately for him, where he he ended up with his 20 years, this, you know, that, that's the culmination of it. Mago, the attempt on Mago Gately was in May 2017. By 2019, Calen Smith was still in trouble. He was smack bang in the middle of the Sean Little Hamid Sanambar situation. And he actually went to the UK and did a polygraph test and sent it back and put it up on WhatsApp. It went around all these WhatsApp groups saying he had nothing to do with Sean Little's murder, that there was no way he had double-crossed him. Um, I think that certainly associates of Little would disagree. It's a chaotic world, and um, it seems that the rewards are very small, given the risk, and I suppose the risk... For, for from a point of view of criminal justice, but also morally, because uh, the likes of Smith have a long time in prison, don't they? To think about what they've done or what they could have done and what's the meaning of life and death. Oh, very much.
0: I mean, you're in a, what is it, four by six metres cell or less than that. It's a long time to think about it. I remember one time years ago I was asking about, uh, I was asking some contact about a particular person who had contacted me. This is a guy with no record, but had obviously been involved in criminality in the past. But he, he was quite religious and was very much at the forefront of a lot of uh, born-again Christian meetings. And I kind of said, like, you know, is this, what's the story of this guy? And he says, well, he's like a lot of these guys, you know, he's obviously, he's killed a few people and he's feeling guilty about it now and he's he's looking for God. So, I mean, some of these guys, like, they, they don't really cope with what, what they end up, you know, they don't cope with the consequences of what they've done, at you know, at points in their criminal career. Absolutely.
1: Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. From Sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, Check out our Facebook page, Prime World with Nicola Tallent.